Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Reading from Exodus 3 and verse 14, the scene here, of course, is at Mount Horeb. God appears to Moses in a flaming fire in a bush. And verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So he's sending Moses to go back and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses says, well, what's your name? Who are you? Who shall I say sent me? And this is the answer. Two things come together here in the name that God gives to Moses. One of them, we believe the letters Y-H-W-H, which is sometimes pronounced Yahweh, but actually we shouldn't even say it because the Jews never pronounced the name that it is connected then to I am that I am and the Hebrew here Hayah the unpronounceable name of God is revealed and of course the idea behind this unpronounceable name is to describe God's transcendence his immutability his unchangeable nature That's the first half of this name, but then look at the second half of the name, that he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, he's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's the one who's going to lead Israel out of bondage, but he's already been the one that's led Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in the name that's revealed to Moses, God is transcendent, he's imminent, he's above the world, and yet he's revealed in history, in the working of the world. Who is God? Well, he's the one who brings Israel out of Egypt. And notice that the bush, it burns, you know, with this divine fire, and yet it's unconsumed. Maybe this is kind of a picture of God's relationship with the cosmos. That is, that God enfolds the world in his presence, but the world is sustained. It's not consumed. It gives off the light of his presence. Now, I don't want to take that metaphor too far because the other half of the name details. Yes, but God reveals himself in history to Abraham. In the incarnation, of course, is what we're projecting forward to. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, he's going to reveal himself in the Messiah, the one that represents all of Israel. And so he reveals himself in this light, but Moses' reaction here, the fire, he obviously he sees the fire, but he turns away because it's too bright to look at. God both reveals himself, and yet he's concealed. Now, I don't want to call this 
a paradox. But I think that something strange, something new is happening here and we shouldn't try to fit this into any other frame. It's not idolatry. God often appears in theophanies in the Old Testament. It is not an affirmation that God is simply transcendent. Certainly God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. Often we'll talk about the incarnation and what people will call it paradoxical or they'll call this. And I'd say, no, this is a new frame for understanding who God is. God's transcendence does not preclude his imminence. God's going to appear in Christ. God is present. Period. I don't think we need to talk about, you know, he's present without mediation. There's no distance. I don't even think the word analogy gets it. He's present in creation. So God manifests himself in the world. But this very straightforward thinking that I'm describing to you is going to be changed up in the history of the church, not just by Thomas Aquinas, but he's an example People are going to talk about the transcendence of God and they're going to extrapolate certain ideas. If you think of Greek philosophy, who did Aristotle say God is? Well, God is the unmoved mover. What does God think about? Well, God cannot think about anything other than himself because if he thought about something other than himself, he would be changing and God is unchanging. God is unmoving. You see where that's going? So who is God? Well, God is kind of a narcissist in the sky. And so there is a philosophical understanding that we can extrapolate from. I do not think we should do that with the God of the Old Testament. But unfortunately, that's what Aquinas and other Christian theologians have done. They've stripped away the comprehensible understanding of God in his divine simplicity He's almost of no composition that we can understand. He has no relationship to creation, inclusive of all the modes of human understanding, so that we can't penetrate the divine simplicity. I don't know about that. But I do know that that's not the way that we come to know God in the Bible. That is, we, you know, I suppose you can have that discussion, but I'm afraid that if we imagine that's the way that we apprehend God and we need to fit this negation, this kind of absence of God, with the positive mode of revelation, what happens in the course of theology is people will come to focus on the philosophical understanding of God rather than the positive revelation, God revealing himself. And this has had profound effect in the church because the way that people will think of God the Father will come to co-op their understanding of who God is in Christ. Now let me give you another scripture to balance out Exodus. Look at Philippians chapter 2. And I think Philippians is a kind of culmination to what's happening in Exodus. That is, here is the promise. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But of course, this is fulfilled that the God revealed in Christ is the fulfillment of the God first revealed to Moses. And the discussion here in Philippians, Paul is telling people to be humble, have humility, 
Because God himself is humble. I, you know, this is an, a quality I don't know that we often attach to God. But of course, we understand that Christ is humble. But look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This means that what we mainly know about God in his essence is revealed to us through his humility, through his mercy, through the Son of God. And I don't think we should balance that out or cancel that out with a different understanding of God. In other words, do we really encounter God in Christ? Do we encounter the essence of who God is? I think we have to answer yes. Christ clothed himself with mortal flesh. He could, I think, say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here is the fulfillment of the divine name. We see both aspects in Christ. He could count himself divine and yet as human. And so the two halves of the name given to Moses, they're fulfilled in Christ. And there is no notion here of the God of the philosophers. This is not a God that you're going to arrive at through pure reason. There is no division between the God who is transcendent, unchangeable, and the God we encounter in Christ. That's my point, okay? take that point but now let me build on it a little bit and that is that we have arguments for God that are called philosophical arguments or natural theology there's a number of ways to describe these but I'm afraid that if we depend upon these philosophical arguments to tell us who God is that we're going to end up with the same gap between the transcendent God and the God we know in Christ that would be there in someone like Aristotle. The reason in something like the ontological argument, it depends upon God being incomparably different. It depends upon an identity through difference. And this sort of reason historically is deployed philosophically and in theology by Descartes, you know, it's confirmed by Kant, but it's also there in theology. And the idea is that we know who God is through reason, and reason came to dominate even in the church, even in theology. And we ended up with a kind of dualistic understanding, a gap in our understanding. Maybe this is not just a church problem, maybe it's just a cultural problem. If you go to the university today, what is a university? Una, it's supposed to be a unified mode of understanding, but that's no longer true, is it? You can go and look at the sciences, but the people in the science department, they have no reason to talk to the people in the humanities department. The people in the sociology department they're not necessarily going to be guided by the people in the religion department. And this same division, this division between theory and practice, 
that is really there in the modern predicament. If you took the Kantian notion, how we can only know the phenomena of the world, we can't really know things in themselves, that got taken up in historical critical studies. If you go to the Bible college and you study the Bible, you're going to study what is called the historical critical method. Why are you doing that? For the reason that I'm describing to you. Because people began to think that they did not have direct access to Jesus or to Christ or to God, but they had to use some sort of means to mediate that to them. This is conservatism, it's liberalism, and our theological understanding, satisfying the mind of God, going to heaven, we kind of have a God beyond being, or God without being, so that there's this dualistic understanding. And so modernism, the Enlightenment, I believe it spawned things like the Protestant Reformation. And this is the starting point in epistemology or how we know. It's presumed that reason, the shared reason, is more basic than even our religious convictions. And that's what I'm saying today is, no, I think that there is something more basic. I'm not saying Christianity is unreasonable, but I'm saying that that foundation for reason is in Christ. That we don't begin outside of Christ. We don't begin with a philosophical understanding of God through reason. You know, it's just presumed that people just know things in the same way. Wait a minute. I don't think anybody knew God like they knew him when he says, I am that I am, and he appears to Moses. I don't think they knew him as we will know him in Christ. And so we've engendered an understanding of Christianity based upon these theological, these, this natural theology. This is the classic way to begin the text that we used to use in the theology class. It began with the natural arguments for God, the cosmological, the teleological, the ontological. And then you prove God, and then the next chapter you go to the Bible. Well, what's wrong with that understanding? Well, the problem is the God that you get through natural philosophical arguments is very different than the God you get in Revelation. And so, too, the mode of coming to that God through pure reason is very different than the understanding you're going to get in the Bible. And so God becomes kind of unknowable. And we even picture Christ this is Aquinas. I don't think he means it exactly this way. He says that Christ himself is just analogous to God. He doesn't reveal to us the essence of God. And what I want to say is, no, I think that we do not need to seal off God's essence from the incarnation. You know, we have the economic trinity. The, oh, God just reveals himself in this way. And that trinity is different than the imminent trinity, who God is in himself. I'd say, no, the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. And the imminent trinity is the economic trinity. Now, we'd have to qualify that and explain that. But the idea is that we know who God is through Christ. Period. I don't think we need to add to that. You know, even the beginning of John, where it says, in the beginning was the Word. What Word? 
are we talking about? Well, when you use the word logos or word in the New Testament, it refers to one thing, the gospel, right? We're not talking about a word that pre-existed the gospel. It's saying that the gospel word that we know in Christ was there in the beginning. This is the, our point of departure. We don't begin somewhere else other than in Christ. Now this may sound a little strange to you because we kind of live with a, an inherent gap. We identify, we imagine we can identify God on the basis of the pre-incarnate Christ. But in the Bible and in the early church, when they said the Logos, they meant the incarnation. They meant the Logos is the incarnate Christ. I'm not saying you can't ask some other questions, but that's not the question that is asked in the New Testament. The implication of John and Paul's focus on Christ incarnate is that we know, we identify who God is through Jesus. He is who God is. Can we state it that way? The early church did not presume to start with the pre-incarnate word. They had no such concept. There is no pre-incarnate. The word doesn't even exist. It's absent from the patristic literature. And so the identification of Gregory of Nyssa, he begins with the cross in reference to Ephesians. It talks about the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of all things. How do we know that? He describes the cross. He says, oh, that's the cross of Christ, that we know all things in and through Christ. He's the one that binds all things, all forms of existence. The apprehension of all things converge in the cross of Christ. This may be an odd way for us to think, but this is the way I think we need to transform our thinking. We don't begin elsewhere other than with Christ. It's not that the Word became incarnate and then suffered on the cross and then the one on the cross is the one. No, that's not the sequence. You know, that's not the way the, the mystery of God revealed. It's not unfolding from some fleshless, heavenly realm. And I think that when we do that, that there is a serious departure from Christian understanding. Jesus Christ crucified, Paul says. This is the gospel. I know Christ and him crucified. That's where we begin. And when we use the word logos, that's what Paul meant. That's what John meant. That's what the patristic fathers meant. There is no notion of understanding who God is. I'm not saying we can't ask those questions, but we can't let those questions override our understanding of who God is in Christ. Think of the Gospel of John, when John says, in the beginning was the Word. What Word? John is the last Gospel. We think it was probably written after 70 AD, maybe as late as 80 or 90. And so when they use the word logos, that just meant the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. As Paul calls it, the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And the apostolic preaching leading up to the passion, the death, the resurrection of Christ. This is the word. And so the word is not Greek philosophy. And that's what's going to happen 
in the history of the church. There is no division in the subject of Christ. You know, there's not the before the incarnation and then the after the incarnation. That's not our understanding. The logos, the word, fills out the meaning of I am that I am, right? We understand that phrase now better through Christ than Moses understood it. There is no Yahweh apart from the God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's one Lord Jesus Christ, one son. And so both Cyril and Hippolytus, very early church theologians, they do describe putting on flesh, but this is not pictured as being inaugurated from the birth of Jesus. Guess where it's inaugurated from? They describe it as working backward in time from the suffering of the cross, that here is Christ bearing the full weight of being incarnate. And so Hippolytus, he comments on Revelation 12, he describes the weaving of the flesh, he says, is an unceasing function of the church, bearing from her heart the word that is persecuted by the unbelieving in the world. And so the male child she bears is Christ, God and human, whom the church continually bears as she teaches all nations. That is, we continue then as the incarnate Christ in the church. This significance is spelled out by Irenaeus of Lyons. He even says the metaphors, you know, we have these abstract metaphors, the word, the life, the light. He said that these should not be separated out from Jesus as the light, Jesus as the life. They're referring to Jesus Christ. The word, the life, and the light is the one who became flesh. It is Jesus Christ, God, man, human, divine, that was the word in the beginning. And so what John and the New Testament are conveying is that God has no story but that of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. He is the only story. It's not that the pre-existent Christ and God you know, have some sort of life story, a secret story, other than the story of Christ. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to reduce all of God down to Christ. I'm just saying that this is the story that tells us who God is. It's not like, oh, God did other stuff for an eternity. And we're to think about those things as if it's in competition with what he's done in Christ. Eternity is not a very long time, right? For God. God is not time bound. God was not otherwise occupied. Eternity is not time at all. Eternity only intersects with time in the sun. So to speak of the Son of God as coming down from heaven, that's a metaphor that is fulfilled, that is complete. In Christ, it's not that the Creator is spatial, that there's up and down or temporal before and after. So there are a lot of implications to what I'm saying. Let me put it this way. The cross and the incarnation 
are eternal facts about God. Time and eternity, the human and divine, they intersect in Christ. And history center is open to the imminent trinity. And all of history is an unfolding of this intersection of time and eternity in the incarnation and in the church. And so Jesus Christ is not one episode among many in the story of the word, but is the singular story of God. And so to imagine God as primarily apophatic, that is negative, we can't know, or impassive, or apathetic, without emotion. I guess you can speak of God that way. That's some God, that's the God of the philosophers, but that's not the God of the Bible. Can you talk about the God of the Bible as being apathetic? Just think of the person of Jesus. And so there is an openness to God through the reality of who Christ is. And it is by definition not the God. You know, the God of the philosophers is not the God of the Bible. And so this in turn leads to a profound significance to our interaction with the word, to our participation in this story, and for our lives now. I think we can often live our lives waiting for the really essential things to happen. The implication of what I'm saying is, no, the really essential things are unfolding now. The connections, the connectedness that we develop in the body of Christ are a participation in who God is. This gives our communion, our relationship, our interconnectedness, an enduring eternal significance. That's what we're saying, right? That what we are doing here and now is of eternal consequence because already for us, eternity has commenced. We begin as believers with the presumption that we encounter God in essence, in Christ. This should tell us what sort of world we live in. Understand, nobody else pictures the world this way. You're not going to get to this understanding through philosophical understanding or through reason or science. This is a specific understanding given to us in Christ. It tells us what sort of creatures we are, that we bear the image of God. So God's being is not remote, but it is known in our earthy, earthly words and signs. We're not talking metaphorically or analogously. Our understanding of Jesus as Logos, as opposed to some pre-existent Christ, recognizing God has chosen in his transcendence to be imminent. God can do that. He can be present in human history, in human language. And this world, as proven, as shown in Christ, is perfectly adequate to reveal God in his essence. Now, I, I haven't mentioned sin here. And of course, that's the problem. It's not a delimitation on God's part that we're cut off from God. And that's often what's read into this. Oh, well, you know, obviously humans are sinful. And they may not be up to this adequacy. They may cling to a dualism, to an antagonism, to a kind of violent epistemology. 
But this is not a delimitation of God. God has defeated sin in Christ. It's a delimitation of human beings. That's the whole point of the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. It's not God that needs protecting or defending through mediating categories. You know, this is the word apologetics. We often take it as if it's a defense of God, as if God needs defending. God doesn't need our defense. He can do that quite well without us. We do not need mediating categories which preserve the transcendence of God. Certainly God is transcendent, but because he's transcendent, he's also imminent. Christ is truly human and divine. Now, I, let me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we know all of God in Christ or even all of Christ in Jesus. But it does mean we can really know God in his essence as revealed in Christ. Now this, I think, does. It does point to divine hiddenness, to divine transcendence. But this hiddenness is forever being revealed to us. It's opening. God is open to our understanding, to our discovery. His transcendence is not some sort of impassable barrier. Now this forecloses on, you know, this is kind of the end. If you just agreed with what I said, this is the end of many of the arguments that we have for God. This is Anselm, both his cosmological argument and his ontological argument. Picture a kind of ontological difference, a complete difference. And in this difference, the word, the reason, the knowledge that is using is by definition devoid of the essence of God. And that is inherent to the epistemology, the way of knowing that's been imparted in much of theology. Now, I've said a lot of stuff here. And what I haven't said, and I don't think I need to say is, how does God do this? How is it that God can be poured into our world and into our understanding. I don't think we need to explain the how. We just need to report that he's done this. That he's acted in Christ. And we can extrapolate and interpret this mighty deed. And so there's no end to the theological quest. To the applications. To the questions. Given this starting point. Beginning with Christ. The conversation never ends. If you begin philosophically, the conversation hits a wall. It stops. Questions cease. Thinking discontinues. I think that's a mark that we're dealing not with the eternality of God, but with the mere reason of man. But the reason of Christ is an unending quest of the opening of God the discovery of God on our parts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.